Christopher James Gracious always dreamed of becoming a man in blue. He had revered police officers his entire life and wanted nothing more than to become one. Unfortunately, this little boy's dream was put on hold when he was diagnosed with leukemia. Unwilling to let Chris's last wish go unfulfilled, U.S. Customs Officer Tommy Austin had promised him a ride in a real police helicopter. As Chris's leukemia worsened, Tommy knew he didn't have much time, but he was determined to make his dream come true. Tommy contacted police officer Ron Cox and asked for his help in making this little boy's wish come true. So on April 29 of 1980, Tommy made good his promise of taking Chris on a ride in a police helicopter. And that was only the start. After an aerial tour of the city, the helicopter landed at the Arizona Department of Public Safety, where Chris was met by three squad cars and a motorcycle ridden by Officer Frank Shankwitz. The group then escorted the boy to become the first honorary state trooper in Arizona history. After his return to the hospital, Chris's condition continued to decline. Three days later, Ron Cox came to the ward to present Chris with his own custom-made highway patrol uniform. Chris had also told Frank Shankwitz that he liked the wings on his uniform, but Frank explained that he needed to pass the motorcycle test before receiving those wings. Without wasting any time, Frank and the other officers set up a miniaturized version of the motorcycle test, which Chris was able to pass on a small battery-powered motorcycle. The next day, the officers were able to present him with his well-earned set of motorcycle wings. Chris passed away the following day. Many of the people Chris had touched in his short life went on to make and found the Make-A-Wish Foundation in his honor. Today, this organization operates in 59 chapters across the U.S. and in 50 other countries around the world through 39 international affiliates, even here in the Philippines, granting wishes to children with critical illness between the ages of two and a half and 18 years old. Now, without having critical illness, don't we all desire to have our wishes come true? It is customary to make a wish before blowing out your birthday cake. And when you blow out all the candles at once, it means supposedly that all your wishes will be fulfilled during the year. As Christians, we often pray and hope that our all-powerful God, like the fictional genie in a bottle, would grant our wishes. It doesn't even have to be three. It can just be one. So my friends, what is your wish at this present moment? Perhaps it's to have more material resources or to own your own home. Perhaps it's to travel to Europe. For some, it's to just get through the school year, to pass a board exam, or to find a great and stable job. For others, their wish is probably to win the lottery, to have their favorite team win the championship before they die. Others wish perhaps to mend a relationship that is broken, to hug or embrace someone you love who is abroad, to somehow turn back the time to right or wrong, or to have the person of your dreams like you back, or just to have another day or week with a loved one that has passed, and the list goes on. There are just so many things we wish for and desire. If only God can fulfill our dreams and desires, even just one. Is it okay to wish for these things? Will God grant our wishes? 
As we continue our sermon series, Checkmate, Studying the Life of King Solomon, we want to explore some biblical principles as it relates to our desires and wishes, including things we should be wishing for that God may grant if it's in accordance with His will. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3 as we study verses 1 to 15. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. I read now verses 1 and 2. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. The Bible tells us that now that all those who posed the threat on the inside had been dealt with by King Solomon and his kingship was secure, as we talked about last week, the difficult task of governing and leading the 12 diverse tribes that make up united Israel began. In these two verses, we read that Solomon felt compelled to marry Pharaoh's daughter to secure an alliance with Egypt in a treaty. Israel must have been flourishing and strong under Solomon's reign for Pharaoh to allow one of his daughters to be married to Solomon. You see, history tells us that it was usually Egyptian pharaohs who took foreign wives, not the other way around, illustrating that perhaps at this time, Israel was stronger or at par with Egypt. As someone observed, a descendant of former Egyptian slaves now became Pharaoh's son-in-law. Nevertheless, whatever the circumstance, Should Solomon have taken a pagan wife? Probably not. As God's commands were very clear about taking wives that did not believe in the living God, Yahweh. And yet, Solomon did. Later in his life, we'll see how this decision and others like it will negatively affect him. However, for now, the author seemingly puts this detail in here to show the prestigious status that Solomon had obtained, but also perhaps implying how the pressures of governing a large country with its many demands and stresses may have caused him to make a mistake in this regard, thinking he had to forge a closer alliance with Egypt for security through a treaty sealed with a marriage. Solomon also had to contend with three major building projects in the capital of Jerusalem, the building of his palace, the building of the temple, and the upgrading and strengthening of the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 2 also notes that because the temple had not yet been built, the people of Israel performed their sacrifices to God in so-called high places. And these high places were often converted from places of offerings where the pagan Canaanites had offered their sacrifices to their false gods. The Lord was very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that they were to offer sacrifices only in places that the Lord had prescribed even if the place was far away and seemingly inconvenient. They were to go there as a commitment to their obedience of the living God. And yet these people went to the high places. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 to 8. Deuteronomy 12, verses 2 to 8. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispose serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. 
There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. So the Bible is clear. This open disobedience by the people was not dealt with by Solomon, perhaps busy with other matters of the kingdom, such as the three building projects, and somehow justified in his mind that this was not an issue that needed immediate attention, with the reasoning that God's chosen place for the temple in Jerusalem was not yet built. And so it was on his list of things to do. As we can observe, young Solomon must have had must have been overwhelmed, having to deal with political and security concerns, administrative and operational issues, and religious and spiritual pressures. It caused him, perhaps, to feel inadequate, make mistakes, and even sin. My friends, this is also the reality of the life that we live. This is a pressure-filled world with many things vying for our attention, our time, and our priority. We feel inadequate and overwhelmed, often forgetting to regularly ask the Lord's help in prayer. And then we make mistakes, and then we sin. Even those who love God and are very spiritual can succumb to the pressures of life and sin, as no one is perfect. And then, sadly, we will experience the consequences of our sinful actions, regardless of the justification. Also remember, we live in a fallen world. We are affected by this sinful world. We experience natural disasters. We have health issues. We suffer from the decisions and actions of others, even if we are children of the living God. When there is an earthquake, it affects both Christians and non-Christians alike. It's not as if it's always sunny over those who are Christians and pouring rain over those who are not. We are all affected by torrential rains when it comes. The point I'm making is this. God doesn't always shield us from the effects of this sinful world and intervene every time we want, just so we won't have any problems in life. And so putting it all together, we have this first principle to understand about wishes. Number one, the effects of a sinful world and the consequences of our actions cannot always be wished away. The effects of a sinful world and the consequences of our actions cannot always be wished away. This truth reminds us that often we can't wish away the very problems we bring upon ourselves for the sins of our lives. The Scriptures teach that while God forgives sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, we may still suffer its consequences. My friends, listen carefully. Don't equate God not granting our wishes to take away our own self-made problems with Him not forgiving. Our God is a forgiving God. In fact, He sent His only Son, Jesus, to die on our behalf in order to be our propitiation before a holy God so that He can forgive us. However, as a loving parent, God may still allow us to experience the discipline and consequences of our actions, and yet He still forgives. Parents know what I'm trying to say, but often kids don't understand this reality. Let's say your child disobeys you on a Friday and you take away his or her iPad for the weekend until Monday. After a day, they come back bored 
and they come to you on a Saturday and say, sorry, mom and dad, what do you tell them? You say, we forgive you, and we love you very much. And the child says, I love you too, mom and dad. Now can I have my device back? But you tell them, no, sweetie, you get it back on Monday, as we said. Then what's their reply? But I already said sorry, and you forgave me. You should give me back my iPad now. But you say, child, the punishment is still in effect, so you will learn your lesson. Does a normal child then say, okay, mom and dad, I understand. This is a good lesson for me. No, of course not. The child often gets angry and storms off and says, well, if I can't get my iPad back, then I take my sorry back also. Let's just say this interaction has played out in my house many times before. My friends, don't think that God is not gracious. He understands the life that we live. He understands how hard it is for us to live in this fallen, sinful world. But that's why even with Solomon's mistakes, God sees how his good heart is still trying to seek the Lord and is commended. Look at verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. We read that Solomon loved God and walked in the ways of the Lord, just like his godly father, King David. Solomon was committed to the Lord in these early years, but he was not perfect. Perhaps with the pressures of leading and governing, he made mistakes, such as marrying Pharaoh's daughter and also offering to the one true God and worshiping him on the side of a formerly pagan high place. But generally, in the early years of his reign, Solomon loved God and tried his best to please God and generally did the right thing with a few exemptions. And look at verses 4 and 5. Now, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? In one of the high places at Gibeon stood the Mosaic Tabernacle, as Second Chronicles chapter 1 tells us. And there Solomon offered 1,000 burnt offerings to God, showing his total commitment and faithfulness to the one true God. In response to this great outpouring of loyalty and commitment on the part of Solomon, the Lord God appeared to Solomon in a dream and basically said, ask whatever you want and I will give it to you. What do you think would be his immediate response? What would be your immediate response if God asked you the same question? Ask, what shall I give you? You know, it's like going to the mall with your kids and as you pass by Toys R Us or Toy Kingdom, you tell your eight-year-old child, your son, you can go into that store and you can buy one thing without any price limit. Whatever you want in the entire store, I will give it to you. What do you think would be your kid's immediate response? Yay! As he or she would run into the store before you change your mind. Do you think that eight-year-old child would say, wow, thanks mom and dad, you are so kind and generous. I believe it's because you were blessed by grandpa and grandma in a similar way that you are now extending this grace to me. I'm unworthy of this gift, but you saw in me a child that was obedient and perhaps deserving of a toy. So thank you very much, O oh beloved parents. I will now excuse myself to enter the toy store if that's okay with you. Thank you again to your parents. I love you. If that was your kid's reaction, I think you would say, wow, that's something wrong with that kid. Or you may say, well, you know what? You can buy 20 things if you'd like. 
But you know what? This was the type of response that Solomon gave to God's generous offer. Look at verse 6. And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. We would expect Solomon to tell God immediately what he wanted before God changed his mind. But notice how he first remembered God's grace and mercy in thanksgiving. Solomon acknowledged that God showed grace and mercy to his father David, who really messed up with Solomon's mother Bathsheba. So Solomon would know God's grace extended to David. He remembered his father's heart of love and faithfulness to God, who in turn honored David by allowing his son Solomon to sit on the throne and extended to Solomon the same grace and mercy he had shown to his father David. You see, before Solomon answered God's question, his heart was filled with thanksgiving, knowing that he had received things he didn't deserve and nor was entitled to, like his kingship. And with this mindset, he is able to narrow down his choices for what he wished to ask the Lord for. Simply put, if you feel like you graciously have everything, you will ask for things that you need, not what you want. Putting it all together, we have our second principle regarding what to wish for, number two. Remembering God's grace and mercy in thanksgiving focuses on what we should truly wish for. Remembering God's grace and mercy in thanksgiving focuses us on what we should truly wish for. My friends, a thankful heart focuses our mind and reminds us of what we already have instead of what we think we need to have in order to be fulfilled and satisfied in life. That's why 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18 reminds us, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you believe that God still owes you certain things in life, you will look around and see what others have and desire those things. A nicer car, a newer phone, another spouse, other people's kids, a bigger house, the ability to travel more, a better job, another career, a better school, and other things. But if you see that God owes you nothing, but by His grace has given you so much of what you do not deserve, then you will be more focused, considerate, and selfless in what you wish for of God to do for you. For example, Chinese New Year's is coming up next week. And as is part of our culture, our parents or grandparents may give us red envelopes filled with money to ring in the Lunar New Year. What if instead of money, your grandparents put in a Bible verse blessing to give you? Would you be happy with it? I think many of us won't be very happy because we were expecting money. We just want the money, really. We don't care about the envelope. And we feel we are entitled somehow to our grandparents and our parents' money. However, if we believe that we've already received so much from them and are thankful, then we would be content and even be pleased with a Bible verse promised from them because that is truly what is most important in life, right? A reminder of spiritual and biblical truths. I know you know I'm right, but guess what? I know deep down you still want the money. Some of you may even be angry with me at this moment for giving your grandparents and parents a spiritual idea about what to put in their red envelopes this week. Don't blame me. That's the Holy Spirit convicting their hearts. But I hope you see my point. 
Anyways, again, if we cultivate a thankful heart, remembering God's grace and mercy, it will change what we wish for from God that we believe will make us happy and satisfied in this life. Now, let's see what Solomon asks about. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. The Bible tells us Solomon admitted to God that he feels overwhelmed with the weight of responsibility. He admitted that he often didn't know what he was doing as king. He compared himself to a little child who doesn't know anything. Solomon humbly recognized how inadequate he was to take on such an important role with its many responsibilities. He humbly saw himself as a servant, suddenly given this heavy task of leading a large, diverse group of people. Solomon understood that this was God's people that he must lead and that he served at the pleasure of his Lord and Master, indicated by the possessive pronouns, your servant, your people, you have chosen. For him, the responsibility given to him was not something to be taken lightly. In fact, Solomon saw it as a God-given divine responsibility, so he better do his job well. My friends, have you ever been given such a great responsibility that you immediately felt inadequate and ill-equipped to handle it? I think every first-time parent holding their newborn in their arms would know this feeling. How do I take care of this little one? I'm now responsible for feeding and keeping this baby alive. I now have to work hard to provide for this child's education and needs. I need to be a more godly person to be a good example for this child. I hope and pray that this child won't emulate all of my bad habits, the parts of me that are bad, so I need to change to be good. The weight of responsibility almost seems too much to bear. I remember when I first held Andrew in my arms at the age of 29. I remember praying, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I need your help. And interestingly, it was after the birth of his son that Enoch, the Bible tells us, transformed his life. Genesis chapter 5 tells us, after the birth of his son Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God. The birth of his child served as a catalyst for him. I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences, just like when you were given the weight of responsibility of being the team lead, being the group leader, the head of a division, given a new sales target to reach, asked to lead a life group, installed as a deacon or an elder of this church, ordained as a pastor, tasked with a thesis or a dissertation to write before your graduation. What do you naturally ask for when you understand the weight of responsibility and your limitations? You ask for wisdom and the ability to do the task. And that's exactly what Solomon asked for, wisdom and ability to lead God's people. Look at verse 9. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? While the wish of Solomon to God can generally be said to be for wisdom, Solomon was actually quite specific about what type of wisdom he was asking of the Lord. It was wisdom to be able to judge well God's people and the discernment between good and evil. This was not a request by Solomon to be smarter for personal gain. 
This was a request on the part of Solomon so that he would be able to fulfill his God-given responsibility better and more effectively. It was not a self-serving wish, but a desire and wish that would honor and glorify God. Solomon understood that with the limitations of being human, which includes not knowing everything and not seeing everything, he needed godly and divine wisdom to dispense with wise judgment that would be expected of a king. And we'll see this in action in our next message. It wasn't that Solomon was asking to know more facts like all the digits of pi or the mysteries of how the pyramids were built or how to build a nuclear bomb in his time or to have all the world's knowledge suddenly given to him where he can now speak all of the languages and solve all math formulas. That's why I used to think growing up as this story was told to me. But when we read the actual verses, we see Solomon asking for wisdom to be able to discern what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, as it related to leading and governing the people of Israel in order to fulfill his responsibilities. My friends, isn't this the type of wisdom we should all be seeking from the Lord in prayer? being able to discern what is good and evil and what is right and wrong to fulfill well our responsibilities as Christ followers in this sinful world. Because evil often masks itself as good, and we need godly and spiritual wisdom and discernment to see what will help us and what will harm us, to see what is edifying and what will draw us away from Christ. We are a generation with access to more information than ever before. But sadly, it's not making us smarter or more discerning. Sometimes I feel all this information is making us dumber and more stupid. Why? Because we grow proud. We forget to rely upon God. We don't humbly acknowledge our limitations and recognize our God-given responsibilities as salt and light to this world. So we don't pray for wisdom in how to live this life to honor God. But we should. And this is our third principle for what to wish for, number three. Acknowledging, and, excuse me, acknowledging our responsibilities and limitations should cause us to wish for wisdom. Acknowledging our responsibilities and limitations should cause us to wish for wisdom. Look at verses 10 to 14. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I've done according to your word. See, I've given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. The Bible tells us that the request of Solomon pleased God because his request was not self-centered, but focused on helping Solomon do what God had tasked him with. God, in fact, identified what most people would have asked for, most of us would have asked for long life or a longer life. That's why the prayer request of most people is to give me good health or to be healed from my sicknesses. I just want to live longer. Others would have asked for more material wealth and riches. Now, let's not kid ourselves. Many of us wouldn't mind having more money 
or being more prosperous. The third group would have asked God to take away an enemy or to remove an obstacle or to deal with a pressing problem so that they could live their lives easier, problem-free. The Bible tells us Solomon didn't ask for any of these self-focused requests, but instead asked for wisdom to discern good and evil as it related to his judgment and decrees as king so he could do better what God had asked him to. That's why the Lord granted his wish. It was not self-centered. Solomon's wisdom and understanding would be unmatched. And because of this selfless request by his grace, God would also give Solomon riches and honors that his prosperity would be unlike his contemporaries. He also told Solomon that if he lived out God's commandments, then long life would be his as well. What a gracious granting of gifts from God to Solomon, even things he didn't ask for. That's how our God operates. He graciously gives. We see here in God's action our fourth biblical principle as it relates to wishes, number four. God often grants wishes that are not self-centered, but God-honoring. God often grants wishes that are not self-centered, but God-honoring. My friends, that should be the basis of our desires and wishes. Not my will, but God, your will be done. Not for my glory, but for your glory alone, God. So our prayer for our spouse, perhaps, should not be that they will understand me more, they will be more like me, but that they will be more like Jesus Christ. Our prayer and wish should not necessarily be that God removes all of my problems, but that if He doesn't remove these challenges in my life, I would still be able to learn the life lessons He wants me to learn and be able to serve as a living testimony of faithfulness to my Lord even through the problems of life. Our prayer should be for wisdom, strength, and discernment to tackle these problems with God's help so that the world can see whom we rely on. My prayer can be that God heals me or my family member if it's God's will. But more importantly, that through what I'm going through in these sicknesses, that God will be glorified through the way I live my life. My wish should not be that I have a great problem-free day without any troubles today, but instead should be the wisdom, strength, fortitude, and sensitivity to perhaps in today's challenges and experiences to somehow be able to introduce Christ to someone or to help someone in their faith journey by encouraging them, whether in the home, at work, at school, or with my friends. But you may say, Pastor, but what about me? I have needs as well. And of course, my friends, we can bring those requests to our Heavenly Father. But the granting of those wishes are based on His will and His promises. Don't forget His promises. We don't even have to wish for many of the things we wish for because they are promises from our Heavenly Father to give to His children the things freely He has promised. Promises of provision, safety, promises of strength and care and help, promises to never abandon us, promises to save and forgive us, to grant eternal life, and so on. A follower of Jesus Christ who knows the promises of the Bible will find out they don't have to wish for too much because our Lord has already promised us so much. I want you to think about that again. A follower of Jesus Christ who knows the promises of the Bible will find out they don't have to wish for too much because our God has already promised us 
so much. But just as a note of caution, remember, you can't claim a promise that God didn't make. You know, I saw a meme recently that said, I can't find in the Bible where it says that if you forward this picture to 20 people in the next hour, you will be blessed. My friends, it's not there. I know this generation likes to use the word manifest. You can manifest and claim blessings all you want, but God won't necessarily deliver what He has not promised. It's not a name it and claim it sort of theology, but yet if you know all the promises of the Scriptures, you will know that there's very little we should really be wishing for because it's all taken care of by His promises. God often grants wishes that are not self-centered, but God-honoring. Look at verse 15. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. For this amazing fulfilling of his wish, with even more blessings, Solomon thanked God and offered sacrifices. One of the most popular Disney songs is When You Wish Upon a Star, written by Cliff Edwards. It was first written in 1939 for the animated film Pinocchio, where the wooden puppet Pinocchio dreamed about and wished to become a real boy. The Academy Award-winning song would go on to become the signature theme song of the Walt Disney Company. I'm sure many of you know the lyrics, which goes, When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. If your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme when you wish upon a star as dreamers do. This song has become very popular and much loved because it speaks to our hearts. Hearts that simply want our dreams to come true. Anything your heart desires will come to you for no request is too extreme. The hopefulness of this song is something even followers of Jesus embrace. But if you would allow me to change it up a bit, to be theologically true. When you wish upon the Lord, as a child who is Heavenly Father, anything that is God-honoring will come to you. If your heart is with the Lord, no request is too much to ask, for His promises and grace are many, as Christians should know. So my friends, as children of the Heavenly Father, who wishes many things, remember first, the effects of a sinful world and the consequences of our sinful actions cannot always be wished away. Second, remembering God's grace and mercy and thanksgiving focuses us on what we should truly wish for. Third, acknowledging our responsibilities and limitations should cause us to wish for wisdom. And fourth, God often grants wishes that are not self-centered, but God-honoring. May the Lord encourage all of us with His Word, knowing that His promises are many and that the loving, gracious, forgiving God welcomes us to put our request before Him, before the very throne room of grace, to see how He will care for us. Mm-hmm.